Oh yeah. Canceled too soon. A podcast. Podcast. About TV. Television shows. That were. That were very, very short. Canceled too soon. One season or less. Oh yeah. This week on Canceled Too Soon. On the out damn spot. What he was saying was this week on Cancel Too Soon. On the air. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review television series that lasted one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for Crave Online, Blumhouse.com. Everyone calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the other guy. Yeah, uh, I'm also a film critic uh, for Legion of Leia. And the also, other guy will suffice. And also uh, Crave Online and also Blumhouse.com. And uh, some people call me main course of awesomeness, as it turns uh, apparently out. Apparently that's the deal. Some people have been writing in. and I am the fatty appetizer. <laughs> he is the main course of awesomeness. <laughs> you know what? A meal wouldn't be complete without both. Yes, it would. A lot of people skip the appetizer. Not me. Oh, okay. Not, not if you want a real meal. Speaking of a real meal, we got a plate that? of weirdness here. Yeah, we do. This is, a, <laughs> this is an odd one. Okay, so uh, Cancel Too Soon is the kind of show where we discover all kinds of odd crap. You know, a lot of shows get uh, canceled after one season or less, and they just... They were just another show. They were kind of... Yeah, just most, a sitcom didn't work. A most, cop show that didn't get off the ground. Mostly are, are canceled just for mere mediocrity. That's it. Just yeah. mediocre. Yeah. They are middle or, of the road. Nobody bad, cares. bad, but not in a way that like didn't even excite anybody. Yeah. It's just gone. Uh, and then every once in a while, I and mean, we've tried to find these with medium success so far. We haven't... <laughs> not every episode's been a winner. You find a show that is so... Bug nuts weird. <laughs> You're not yeah. surprised it got canceled. You're surprised it got made. Like, like people actually agreed to this yeah. to, be, in, to begin with. Uh, and this isn't like an obscure thing. This is network television. This was an ABC series. Yeah. It, called On the Air. Create from the creators of Twin Peaks. So, like, mm. I got the I get the impression. And this was 1992. So a day, year after Twin Peaks. So this is a year after Twin Peaks. Uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost had a big hit with Twin Peaks. Uh, David Lynch had just made Wild at Heart. Mm -hmm. So this was essentially the time he was on top of the world. Well, to be fair, Twin Peaks was a big hit, and then it fizzled halfway through the second season. Like, yeah, David Lynch left to apart. make David Lynch left to make Wild at Heart, mm -hmm. uh, and he left the show in bad hands. And you can see there's the episode. David Lynch directed an episode midway through. The second season of Twin Peaks. And it feels a lot different. And yeah. then the next episode, it's a different program. Mm. It's incredible. Like, from the first shot, you can tell <laughs> everything went wrong. Yeah. And the show picked up again eventually, but it lost all of its all of its audience. Well, so it, 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 wasn't, it ended well. It ended well. Because, well, well, because, cliffhanger. well, because David Lynch came back and said, yeah. how do we wrap this up? And David Lynch said, well, here's what I was thinking. And that's mm. what they did. And when David Lynch was really spearheading it, he did a lot of the first season. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he was really. And the first half of the, of the second season, he was he was, spearheading yeah, he, was, he, was he was really in heavily in charge. He was the showrunner. Yeah. He, and the problem is when you're David Lynch, only you know what's going on. 
Uh, yeah, it's hard to articulate even... absurdity, Dadaism, and surrealism mm-hmm. in a consistent way. When you give it to a committee, they might try and they might have good intentions, but they're not going to have that focus of yeah, vision. So it, you might get someone like people who worked with David Lynch before, like Mark Frost and uh, yeah. and Jack Fisk, who directed a couple episodes yeah. of On the Air. Or Leslie Lincoln Gladder, uh, who did a couple episodes of On yeah, the Air, they, who I they, also believe worked on Twin Peaks. They all know David Lynch, but I think at the same time they don't know David Lynch, because I think only David Lynch really knows David Lynch. That's probably true. And uh, so, but he had he was essentially thrown the keys to the kingdom. They said, do what you want. He's like, well, I've done my soap opera. Now I'm going to do a sitcom. Yeah. And so the premise of his sitcom, On the Air, is it takes place in 1957 and it's about a, a TV show that's being produced in 1957, a live TV show called yeah. The Lester Guy Show. It's a variety show. Mm. It's got a, a somewhat famous movie star. Kind of a washed up movie star. Yeah, a bit of a washed up, but he, he, had, a, he had his day. Mm. Um, and he's hosting a television series and it's mostly a series of sketches and vignettes mm. with a bunch of famous people, all of whom have been made up for the show. And the show is about what goes on behind the scenes. And you get to see just how ludicrous, absurd, strange the people are who are attracted to this business, and and also just how much creativity and success comes from luck, accident, and... (laughs) Tragedy. Well, and the the running gag of the show is that each episode is about setting up, for the most part, is about mm-hmm. setting up an episode. And at the end of most of the episodes, we get to see the show, the Lester Guy show, and mm-hmm. how everything has gone completely off the rails. Yeah, nothing ever goes according to script in an episode of the Lester Guy show. Yeah. And the, the irony of, is that the show is beloved for it. It's actually yeah, it's, kind of amazing. At the end of the first episode, everything goes horribly wrong. Uh, the the lead actress uh, Betty, mm. decide, who is a total dim bulb, uh, yeah. decides to sing a song with a music box she carries with her, and Lester mm. Guy ends up hanging by his feet in front of the camera, and yeah. animals run in front of the camera. It's just this completely weird thing. Yeah. The camera falls on its side, and people turn their TVs on the side, and uh, the very last line of dialogue is we have a hit on our hands yeah all this weird crap happens then the the unseen uh director of the network calls up and says we have a hit on our hands well unseen in that episode eventually we we, we do mean um on the air is one of many shows that was about making shows it wasn't actually Mm. all that novel uh it had been done yeah um had it been done in the 50s though had it been set in the 50s i think there were some like in the I don't know. I'm not sure about the period piece aspect mm-hmm. of it. I'm sure some some very intelligent listener is already tweeting at us. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but thank you. Let us know. Um, in Shortly after On the Air, uh, there was a show on the AMC network, back when AMC stood for American Movie Classics, mm-hmm. and not, uh, you know, all, cool all. original programming, and we'll show Catwoman occasionally. <laughs> um, but American Movie Classics, I believe it was their first original bit of programming. They did a show called Remember When, W-E-N-N, and it was about a radio show in the 1930s. 30s, mm. I believe. Uh, and it was a sitcom. It was very much like this. It was a little bit more conventional, um, you know, mistaken identity or character-driven stuff. It was less surreal. Uh, but that show was great, and that actually lasted several seasons. Okay. So there was that. Um, but yes, and then later, later on, obviously, you could look at something like On the Air and see it as sort of this bizarre template for 30 Rock. Where you see, I, I suppose, again, there's a variety show. Here are the weird people who uh, make it, and how everything that's good is good by accident. Mm. It's 
a similar premise at any rate. Yeah, I, I suppose so. Although it's, it, I hesitate to compare this to anything because it is just so unbelievably bug nutty weird. Yeah. David so, Lynch is the director of, he's most famous for directing dark, disturbing movies. Mm. If you're not familiar with the works of David Lynch, and I suppose that's possible, let's let's run down oh, real fast. Right, okay. David Lynch is an art house filmmaker who kind of accidentally stumbled into some mainstream success. Mm. Uh, he started off with one of the most surreal, disturbing, nightmarish movies ever made, a film called Eraserhead. It's one of my favorite movies. It is one of Whitney's <laughs> favorite movies. And it's about a guy who sort of lives in this sort of dystopian, Kafka-esque nightmare world, and then he finds out he's gotten his girlfriend pregnant, and then she leaves him with the baby, and the mm. baby is a monster, and his mm. mind dissolves. Pretty much. That's and, kind yeah, of the whole movie. Hallucinations about women living in the radiator and worms that are coming out of his girlfriend's body. Yeah, it's a kind of weird yeah. stuff. After that, he did... Um, I'm not sure if this was the next thing he did, but shortly after that, he did uh, uh, The Elephant Man. That was his next film. Yeah, yeah which is an incredibly good drama about mm. the, the Elephant Man, the man who was horrifically deformed but actually had a beautiful soul. Um, and uh, that earned, that earned him earned him earned him some, some nominations. Uh, he started getting you know he did he was cor- courted by the big studios at that point. Yeah. and he he chose to do an an adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune, well, this, which is material that really doesn't fit David Lynch terribly well. And, he, and he'll admit to to as much. He yeah. he hated working on Dune. He hated the strictures of working within that it's sort a of huge storytelling sci-fi epic. It's, that's it's, like it, it's it's hard to describe if you've never seen it. But David Lynch's Dune is kind of like Game of Thrones if you have no idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> so like Game of Thrones. Oh, shut up. No. <laughs> no, but he was actually courted at that in that time to do uh, Return of the Jedi. Ah, yes. And uh, the, Boy, I would have loved to have seen that version. That would have been really fantastic. Well, Can you imagine it David been, Lynch's Jabba the Hutt? It would have been like it uh, like Dune is what it would have yeah. been like. It would have been a lot better, I think, than, mm. than uh, Richard Marquand's version. I would have loved but, to have seen what David Lynch would do with a lightsaber battle. Like, yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. do it. It's got to be in there. What do we do? It, it, well, it, it, it would have been lit with nothing but lightsabers. We don't even see the people wielding them. They would just be moving slowly, evenly through the <laughs> darkness. It's kind uh, of, that kind of is how Richard Marquand shot some of the last lightsaber duels. Right? I, I guess so. But... There's there's a really terrific interview with David Lynch where he talks about how he was being courted to do Return mm-hmm. of the Jedi and he's brought up to Lucas Ranch. He was he met George Lucas. Sure he did. And he's like, hey, I'd like you to. I saw the Elephant Man. It's great. I'd like you to direct Return of the Jedi. And he said David Lynch is completely baffled by because every- he's not paying attention to Star Wars. He doesn't care. Yeah. It's like well, and so he's being shown around Lucas Ranch, like pointing this, like, and he's showing me all of these weird things. And I point to that, and he says. That's a Wookiee. And I say, no, I'm not doing your movie. <laughs> That's a Wookiee. Like, he was introduced to a Wookiee and he was out. That was it. <laughs> and everyone thought David Lynch's career was kind of over after Dune. Like, oh, he just shot himself in the foot. And then he retreated and he made something really weird and personal and creepy called Blue Velvet. Uh-huh. Starring Cal McLaughlin as a college graduate who comes home after his father has a heart attack. It's a heart attack, right? It's yeah, it's some sort of leaves him infirm. His father's in the hospital. He comes home from college, mm-hmm. starts seducing the, the girl next door played by Laura Dern, but then they both find a severed ear in the park. Well, no, he, he finds the severed ear and it's kind of detail. ropes her in. He finds yeah. a severed ear in the park and that leads him into a, a bizarre and creepy mm-hmm. saga of kidnapping, voyeurism, drug use, and everything. And Dennis Hopper. <laughs> and the glorious Dennis Hopper. And then that got more Oscar nominations. And by that point, David Lynch was basically just like we don't know what to do with him but we all agree David Lynch is great right yeah we're we're gonna keep him around just to see what he does next and next he did uh, Twin Peaks basically and then Twin Peaks was actually before the 80s especially the late 80s Mm. um 
film and television were kept kind of separate. If you were a big filmmaker, you probably didn't do much work in television. Yeah, you, made, a, you started in television, you moved into film, TV but you didn't was, come back. TV was seen as a, a low art if you were already in film. Yeah, exactly. And, and now, of course, that's completely reversed. But one of the things, <laughs> exactly. that, one of the things that, ha- that spurred that change was serious filmmakers started moving into television. The first and most prominent example that I can think of mm-hmm. uh, is Michael Mann, who had already had a huge hit on his hand with Thief. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had... He did Miami Vice. He did a show called Miami Vice, which completely changed the way television uh, sort of filmed their their material, but also the way they used it, music, and it, it, also it felt became, like nothing else. Well, and it, it turned a lot of TV shows, and there were a lot of these before, but they, they turned into something that was creator-driven, yeah. where we had a, a single uh, voice behind it rather than sort of a studio idea. Yeah. And uh, there, like I said, there were shows, there was creator-driven shows before that, and there are still plenty of studio-driven shows today. Yeah. But yeah, it started to evolve into trying to attract... Uh, an interesting mind to create the show and run the show. Exactly. And uh, into this milieu stepped David Lynch. Yeah, David Lynch, uh, who, uh, along with Mark Frost, created the series Twin Peaks, which is a really great series. It really does drop in quality by the end of the, by the halfway through second season, but it's worth to keep going to get to the end. Mm. Um, and it was a show about... And then about, the movie is fantastic. The movie is, so, yeah. is a beautifully terrifying <laughs> nightmare. Uh, but it's a story about a, like a homecoming queen type idyllic mm. young teenage girl who is murdered before the beginning of the first episode and everyone and that murder spawns everyone to investigate every aspect of the town and you realize that the seemingly perfect small town America is actually a hotbed of horror. Yeah. yeah. Now, but, but what's interesting is that he, David Lynch... This is, is not a melodrama, though. David Lynch really staged this as... It, it's sort of like this nightmare version of, of a neo-noir. Uh, he, he's, he's doing a soap opera... Mm-hmm. But it's a soap opera through a dark mirror. It's like the the Charles yeah. Adams version of a of a soap opera. David Lynch doesn't operate in any sort of conventional storytelling tropes whatsoever. No. He's not interested. He's famously said that a mystery is ruined once it's solved. He likes being lost in sort of this complete confusion. And he's not alone. And he tries on that. to sustain that as long as he can. And in a, in a TV series, mm-hmm. he thought that was ideal. Just sustain the mysteries yeah. for season after season. Never after reveal season. who killed Laura Palmer. That yeah. was his original idea. And of course, everyone was like, who killed Laura Palmer? And he felt like he had to. Yeah. Um, that's not, he's not alone on that, by the way. Mm. The, the, you ask any serious writing teacher or, or, or author, they'll probably tell you that the solution to the mystery is the least interesting part. Otherwise, we'd get to it sooner. Right. The whole point is, what does it reveal as we investigate someone's life? That's It's it, uh, it's not so much a whodunit as a why done it. Right. Um, and Twin Peaks was an excellent example of that. But what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at by giving you this sort of history of David Lynch is that David Lynch was not known for comedy. No, he no. There were funny bits in his stuff. He's there's, not. He's not not funny. There's but funny he was bits. No, we use the word nightmare like five times or something <laughs> as we we're describing the various songs of David uh. Lynch, and it's appropriate. So when David Lynch decided to do a straight comedy, there is still this uncomfortable, dreamlike quality and to you, it. You kind of manic and awkward. You can't and weird. tell if he if he finds these things genuinely funny or if he's just giving you some sort of weird mirror universe version of comedy there's an like alternate reality it, it sounds like he's it, uh, when you're watching okay. on the air it sounds it feels like he's trying to kind of deconstruct comedy in a lot of ways yeah like trying to to present something that has the same beat and the same flavor and the same tone mm. as comedy but is deliberately not funny and i think it feels that way because there's a very specific naivete to the way that he directs the comedy here mm. everything is very arch 
Yeah. Everything is kind of awkwardly timed. It's not whip crack Seinfeld timing. <laughs> um, and I was about to say, I feel like there's an alternate reality in which David Lynch is like the best community theater director ever. And, I, and that's, <laughs> and that's where all he he's peaked. doing. Yeah. Because you look at on the air and it's just like, you know, if you took this, you know, sort of mode, this, this storytelling style, this, everything about this. Mm. And if you had done, I don't know, the Philadelphia story with it, yeah. it would just be this weird community theater thing. And it'd be yeah, almost yeah, like yeah. waiting for Guffman. Like it, it's it, hard to, the stuff you came up with in college. Yeah. Like you, 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 you and your like buddies got together. Yeah. Film. Like, but he, and yet, on the air was very very funny. On the air uh, aired blah, 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 June twentieth to July fourth, yeah, nineteen ninety two, on the ABC network. Three episodes. Three episodes were aired out of only seven. Uh, this was a year before the Radioland murders. Oh, the Mel Smith movie. Yeah, the Mel Smith movie, uh-huh. which I actually like more than most people, but it's think, very similar. In I a lot think of it's ways. fine, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like, really manic, but it gets yeah. a bum rap. It opens uh, in nineteen fifty seven. Uh, and the opening credits of this show mm. are kind of haunting, beautiful, Mulholland drivey. Well, like, it's, and it's An- Angelo Badalamenti who did all the music for all of David Lynch's stuff. So this I think most, if not all, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, this sort of really dreamy jazz is what he Yeah, does. and it's just creating this, this atmosphere of, oh, the past. You know, this sort of whiny saxophone mm. making you remember, oh, the blues. And you see people walking on the street. And Stock footage, these, yeah. And, and these, like, television towers sending out cartoon electricity signals. There's a great shot uh, that they use a couple of times in the show that's like America and the building that's sending out the TV signal is it's like... the only thing visible, yeah. It's the only thing visible, but it's like reaching into the sky. <laughs> like, it's reaching into the stratosphere. Mm. The, the earth appears all in black. Like, it's just <laughs> different shades of gray. Mm. Not even black and white, just the, the oceans are black. And then every once in a while, there's a fart noise. Yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I can't. I don't know what that is either. I, I think this the, is. It's the weirdest. Something tells thing. me David Lynch probably thought that was really, really funny. Yeah. It's like do 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 do. And it's not not like a fart. It's somebody clearly making a it's, fart it, noise it, with, with their, their mouth. With their mouth. It's like. A... <laughs> like that's all it is, and it's just it's really taking. I, I, I'm thinking two things. It's clearly taking the piss. Out of David Lynch's whole persona. Yeah, In fact, there's yeah. an interpretation of On the Air that it is actually just this sort of weird behind the scenes of how Twin Peaks got made. <laughs> About this director who no one understood just telling everyone to do weird stuff mm. and that it never comes out never, right. Everything falls apart. The network hates it. Think, yeah. And first, they no one understands why it's a hit. <laughs> and it's absurd. It's, it's The whole thing is absurd from top to bottom. Uh, that, that's that's certainly a salient observation. Yeah. Uh, I, I think though this, this is just David Lynch doing what he found funny, mm. and I've I've as as a big fan of David Lynch, I've seen a lot of his interviews and stuff, and he does find we, this kind of stuff funny. Yeah, uh, he talks a lot about a film project that he was putting together that never came to bear, uh, called Ronnie Rocket. I am, or uh, he had one about he he pitched a movie once. Oh, is it the cow one? The cow one. Yeah, where it's. And the the premise was it's four guys sit. They used to be cows. Okay, yeah. keep going. They used to be cows, and now they just sit on a porch and watch traffic go by. Isn't that funny? That's David. That's David Lynch's comedy. Yeah, 
Like, that was his whole pitch. It's like, it's kind of funny. I'm not sure how you sustain that for a whole film, David. That, and that's kind of how I feel about On the Air, too. I'm just not sure how they expected to get a whole series out of this. But Well, and it seems to me that David Lynch directed the first episode. I know, uh, it was sure one, one of the ones that aired. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, at the end, it says, we have a hit on our hands. But, of course, it's in this broken English that actually has subtitles because it's mm-hmm. so weirdly pronounced. It's like, we have a hat on our hands. And, uh... David Lynch said, okay, there's the pilot. You guys go. I'm, I'm going. I'm leaving. I'm going to go direct Wild at Heart. Do whatever you like with that. And they looked at this pilot and said, the fuck? <laughs> well, I don't know what to do with this. So they repeated a lot of jokes. They tried to come up with these character dynamics, but nothing ever gelled because nothing really sticks in this universe. I, no, I think they do. I think well, they start finding the, a groove. Uh, they start a little bit. So uh, in the first episode, Betty, the mm-hmm. the kind of brain dead character. Betty Hudson. Betty Hudson uh, kind of becomes the new star of the Lester Guy show. People she, like her. She's introduced as this ditzy ingenue mm-hmm. and no one can explain anything to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at she's first, played by uh, Marla Rubinoff. And, what you, and what's weird is that you look at the show, the pilot, and you think to yourself, oh, she's the ditzy blonde receptionist character mm-hmm. who says something dumb and then leaves the, you know, the, the episode. And that's all she is. She's just this terrible one-off joke character. And then you realize she's the heart she's, of the series. She, she's, the, yeah, kind of the lead character yeah. of the series. She ends, and, up, uh, she ends up becoming a, a, a movie star, but it never injures her soul. And then uh, uh, Lester Guy, uh-huh. uh, who is played by... Uh, Ian Buchanan. Who you'll also remember from Twin Peaks uh, mm. as the sort of sleazy department store guy. He's, he's my favorite part of the show. I think he's really great. He's like, really he's, great he's in the digging, show. Like, he seems, to, he seems to know something the other actors don't. He's on exactly the right wavelength. Yeah, yeah. And so he is... He's making the most of this opportunity. It's clear that he was he wishes he'd been a bigger movie star, but now he's got a TV show, and by God, he's going to hang on to this. And Betty starts stealing his thunder, and so a lot of the episodes are about him... Sa- trying to sabotage her in some way. Yeah, right? and along with the, uh, the television station's head of comedy, played by the late... Great Kim yeah. McGuire. Yeah, who played uh, Hatchet Face in Cry Baby. Yeah, and, and she's this and not much else, actually. She didn't have, she didn't yeah. have a particularly long career, uh, but she was great in everything she was in, and she's mm. really, really funny. So a lot of the episodes are her and Lester Guy uh, just trying to scheme and get Betty in trouble and get her fired. Along- and, of, and of course, ruining themselves in the process. Yes, and uh, uh, Miguel Ferrer, also of Twin Peaks fame, and playing the same kind of Twin Peaks character, that gravelly-voiced, t- all-serious, kind of angry at all the guy. time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's he's one of the executives at the network. Mm. He's, he's the network president. He's the network president. He doesn't mm. own the network, but he's a network president. So he does have someone he's constantly trying to keep happy. Um and he's the one who's just trying to keep everything together, keep everyone on script. And and he's the one who's always like he's the the pessimist, like this the, this thing's going. This is a train wreck ro- rolling to hell. You know, those are his yeah. constant comments. Yeah. Um. And so they're working together, trying to get the show on track. And that's can, where can, a lot of the drama we, comes from. Can we stop and praise Miguel Ferrer like endlessly? Here? I don't because, think it's possible to praise Miguel Ferrer enough. Uh, Miguel Ferrer, he plays this tough character and he's legitimately imposing. Mm-hmm. And yet he is able to maintain his seriousness and his dignity even when he picks up a phone and it sprays him in the face with water. He's one of the all-time great straight men in he, this. He, he is the stoniest of faces. Yeah. Uh, since Buster Keaton even. <laughs> He's one of our greatest underappreciated actors. Like, every time you see Miguel Ferrer in something, 
you know you're in good hands. This scene <laughs> is going to be great. And yet, he's I don't think he's got an Oscar or anything. Like, he's just... He's just beloved, and mm. no one talks about it. He did a great horror movie called The Night Flyer. Oh, there! I didn't see The Night Flyer. It's but yeah, great, yeah, yeah. and he plays. I know he's good in that it's one. It's based on the Stephen King short story, and he plays a tabloid journalist who is investigating the series of murders. Like someone is flying like a Cessna, like a small plane, mm. into isolated uh, airports, killing everyone at the airport, and then flying away. <laughs> And he starts thinking. He starts discovering that maybe the pilot of that plane is a it's vampire. Like, it's a monster of some kind. And it's just all about like just how that level of crank journalism sucks away at your soul. Mm. The movie itself, like the actual plot, is okay. Miguel Ferrer turns it into a brilliant character piece, <laughs> like exceptionally good character piece. Like yeah. he's so great in everything. So yeah, um, he in many ways is the MVP of the cast. Yeah, uh, other characters on the show. There's uh, the the producer who's always saying the first time we see him, he's holding two mugs of coffee and he's spilling them everywhere and saying my nerves, my nerves, <laughs> and he stays on that note throughout the rest of the show. Yeah, there's a lot of um, incidental characters. There's the hurry up twins. A pair of conjoined twins who, who just run, walk past the camera going, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, And hurry up. every time they do, a disembodied narrator mm -hmm. just says, the hurry up twins. Just in case you didn't get who they mm. were. Uh, there's uh, Blinky. Everyone likes Blinky. Blinky's terrific. Blinky is, is he, the it's gag like is. Tracy Walter, the, the you, great Tracy Walter. You know Tracy Walter from such films as Repo Man, uh, uh, Batman, he was Bob to Jack Nicholson's Joker. Yeah, he, he was in Conan the Destroyer. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's always so great. great in everything. He, and he's the, the one who said, that's a bug cocoon in uh, The Silence of the Lambs. There you go. Uh, and he plays uh, one of the sound technicians, and the gag plays most of the time. Like, oh, it's funny, he's blind, he mm. can't see where everything is. But, as an announcer tells you in every single episode, <laughs> every single episode, it'll Boseman. cut to Tracy Walter. Bozeman simplex. Yeah. He, he's staring off into the distance, mm. and a disembodied narrator, we never meet this narrator, we don't know who they are, just says, Blinky Watts is not blind. He suffers from Bozeman simplex. He actually sees 25.62 times as much as we do. If we were to see what Blinky is seeing right now, it would look something like this. And then it would cut to the other actors on the other side of the room from Blinky, mm -hmm. and there'd be like four of them, well, and, and, there, and then there'd, and be, there'd be... It, the film would be uh, reversed and going... like. Be, Push back and forth and sort of video toaster effect, kind of kaleidoscopy, like, yeah. and then but then there would also and just then, be like, weird stuff superimposed on the frame, like a plush dog and a yeah. sparkler and the, yeah, like, and candy a monkey cane wrench or and yeah, yeah. ducks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and ducks ducks is a recurring motif in the show ducks as well. Ducks start showing up and on the air after a while, mm -hmm. like they get like this one weird thing where just like there's a, a scene that ends and then someone sees this like duck enter a bright red nightmare room and then later on <laughs> Betty's talking about has anyone seen my duck doodles yeah. he's named after my uncle I'd like to meet your uncle mm. Sounds like that's a, the scene. It sounds like por <laughs> bad porno dialogue. A lot of yeah. it plays like that sort of that's what I mean this sort of like community theater mm. kind of arch weirdness where everyone's just kind uh, of talking really directly about every topic. Or, or, or you know a lot of it felt really improvised. Mm. It's like people were making this up in community theater and they're just filming it and they say, yeah. okay, that's our script. Well, that's also we're, a lot of porn, yeah, gonna, isn't it? Well, I suppose so. They sort of give uh, your, your, uh, your uh, high school senior, senior, she's 18, don't worry, and uh, <laughs> you got an F on your, on your paper and you're trying to get out of it with the teacher mm. uh, and at some point you're going to offer him sex and uh, make it last about three minutes. Go! 
Okay. Like, uh, that's the uh, improv exercise. Have you seen my doc? What? Yeah. And then, it's, it's one of those, yeah. well, it's more like one of those improv exercises where you have to pull three words out of a hat and incorporate those words into your act somehow. This is all a whose line is it anyway yeah. gone way out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> somehow made it to network TV. Yeah. Um, okay, who else we got? We, okay, we got uh, the, 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 the director who is the the... He's owner. German. He's German, but his accent is implacable. He just sort of replaces yeah. vowel sounds. And he's kind I think he's kind of a spoof of that generation of uh, Eastern European film directors that came over to the States in the yeah, 30s. Sort to, of to Otto Preminger y kind of. The Premingers, the Lubitches, the Billy Wilders, mm-hmm. you know, the people who were working in, in Modern Million, actually changing film for the better. But he's just sort of clueless. He doesn't really know what's going on. He's. Yeah. He yells into the wrong end of his megaphone. That's another running gag. Yeah. And he, and honestly, everyone and, uh, is and he translated. Has an, he has an interpreter played by the really bright-eyed uh, Ruth, played by Nancy Ferguson, yeah. who's uh, cute as a button. Oh, my God. Nancy Ferguson. Nancy Ferguson <laughs> is one of my favorite underappreciated actresses. She usually plays a dancer in things. I guess she has a dancing background. Okay. This is kind of her biggest role. Her other big role that I always loved her in was in the brilliant horror musical Rockula. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. That was her, wasn't it? Yeah, she plays like the yeah, assistant right. to this pop star who at the end of the song, when the pop star doesn't show up because uh, Thomas Dolby, the guy who's saying she blinded me with science, is trying to kill the pop star while he's dressed as a pirate well, uh, with wearing, a rhy- with wearing a rhinestone peg leg and he's trying to kill her with a hand bone because Tony Basil told him to. Mm. This movie is great. Uh, <laughs> Nancy Ferguson. Nancy Ferguson gets to do this song called The United States of Beat. And it's her singing it on stage with like the kids of uh, Mark Mothersbaugh and it's great seriously if you haven't seen Rockula it's one of my favorite Halloween movies takes place on Halloween I'm not this isn't a lie See Rockula. I think it's on Amazon Prime. It's so great. Oh, good. Because if seriously, it's on, I it's, love it's her. It's impossible to find. But yeah, she, yeah, it's on. It's on streaming now. At least it was last and, uh, year. Yeah, like it's great. She is. She's never shaken. Her character is always bright-eyed mm-hmm. and helpful, mm-hmm. and that's sort of her her note. Yeah. And and in fact, you'll find that may apart from Lester and maybe Betty, there's not a lot of variation in the characters. They're all on the same <laughs> note. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of rising or falling. They have there's a character no... type and that's it. Uh, and so you, when you see these characters sort of over the course of seven episodes, you, the only then do you be, really begin to realize what David Lynch was kind of doing with the show. And it's riffing on a lot of these character types. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to create characters. A lot of people, I think, gave Twin Peaks too much credit. I mm-hmm. think they assumed that David Lynch had some sort of vision and an arc for all of these characters and places that he wanted them to go. He didn't. No, it's, he, he was making it up as he, he went along. He was making it up as he went along, yeah. and he had no... He was very open about it. He that. wasn't trying to create beloved, complex characters. He was trying to create an entire mystery that these characters were going to be lost in. Yeah. And the characters were always meant to re- remain vague, and I think that's the same, true of On the Air as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really reveals when you're watching on the air that even Twin Peaks didn't have direction. And I think people were watching Twin Peaks finding all this complexity when David Lynch had no intention of adding any of that. All right. So uh, the first episode, again, it's basically, it's kind of like noises off. The first half is them rehearsing it. And you see how the episode's supposed to go. Mm. It doesn't seem very interesting. Then the episode goes completely off the rails. Again, Lester Guy gets thrown about the stage, hit on the head multiple times. Mm. People get shot when they weren't supposed to get shot. And it's really funny. 
I love the the bit where the curtain opens and there's just some sort of random guy on the set, and like, he's cower- terrified, cowering and he in the corner, move. and he can't move. Yeah, it's really, really, really great. Also, uh, one last uh, point of note about episode one: uh, one of the chorus line girls was played by Vanessa Angel. That's right. I was going to mention that Vanessa Angel, who you may recall from the Farrelly Brothers movie Kingpin, or as uh, the sort of. Artificial intelligence, Frankenstein woman from the television series of Weird Science, <laughs> which she, and, lasted and, way longer than you'd think. You and, can't and cover she's, it on this she's show. done a lot of like B films and then B sexy movies and yeah, that sort of thing. The second episode of On the Air is the one where they tried. Is the one where they fucked with the formula the most. Because the formula is mostly we're trying to get the show off the air. There's some backstage shenanigans going on, and then eventually it all falls apart. Uh, in episode two, they don't put on a show. It's yeah, it's the only one where there's no episode. Yeah, the idea like is episode of the the yeah the Lester guy show. It's it's the the day after the ep- the first episode aired. Everyone's kind of celebrating. Lester is just starting to realize that Betty is the star, mm. and everyone else is can tell that Betty is a star. She's getting all the fan mail. He's not. And what's more, Mr. Zobolotnik, uh, the, the owner of the network, has invited her to dinner. <laughs> and he hasn't invited Lester Guy to dinner, so he and Miguel Ferrer and uh, Hatchetface, I just want to call her Hatchetface, Kim, Kim McGuire. McGuire. Hatchetface just is such a, a, a wonderful character. Mm. And a really positive character, yeah. too. People don't talk about there how There ain't great... nothing wrong with my face. I got character. People do not talk mm. about how great Crybaby is. Crybaby is so good. It's a really good movie. Um... Kim McGuire. They're, they're adapting it to stage, by the way. I heard it's, about that, yeah. yeah. It's going to be a stage production. Uh, so, so it's Kim McGuire, Miguel Ferrer, and Lester Guy, and they are, I'm just mixing up all their characters and their actors. That's fine. Uh, and they scheme to get her, like, really nervous that she thinks Mr. Zubalak is going to, like, try to get her into bed so she'll, like, r- fight against him. And, mm. and of course, she, she, she's just nice. Mm. And she's a little nervous. She, she's, but then she's she, too dumb to be mean. Yeah, and then Mr. Zobolotnik turns out to just be really, really sweet. And everything she says, where she's like getting it wrong, where she talks about the toupee on his head, he misinterprets it and thinks she's just being wonderful. <laughs> and then like Lester Guy, who's actually like an okay actor, like it actually took me a minute to realize he was playing in the chauffeur mm. and like telling her all of these lies about Mr. Zobolotnik. Yeah. And then he also shows up as, as like as their a- waiter. <laughs> Which is like one of the older sitcom tropes. I think I saw that in a Lucy episode where somebody's posing as a waiter, but yeah. Yeah, and and so, and then what happens is at the end, everything is revealed. Mrs. Zobolotnik thinks they're all just playing a wonderful game or something. And then lovely Betty just takes Lester aside and says, Lester, do do you want me to try to get you a raise? I know the head of the network, and I think if your fans knew that you had to work as a waiter to make ends meet. (laughs) And then then he bursts into tears. And it's actually a really great ending, but the episode itself is just weirdly conventional for on the air, and I think it's actually the weakest episode. Well, and that's why I said, you know, they they throw the key, you know, David Lynch threw the keys to these other people. It's like, do what you will. Well, I don't know how to do what you do, David Lynch. I'm just Mm going to try to turn this into a sitcom. And uh, so, yeah, most of the episodes... With the notable exception of the seventh, uh, all feel vaguely conventional in comparison. Yeah. There's a couple of really good gags in this one I do want to mm. single out. There's this one bit where, where Miguel Ferrer looks at uh, this one uh, stagehand. I think his name is Tiny? Little? Tiny. 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 No, uh, Shorty. Shorty. Shorty, who's, of course, huge. Yep. And uh, it's just him, and he's just sort of leaning up against the, uh, a wall. And Miguel Ferrer says, what do you think you're doing? Holding the wall up? And Shorty says, yeah. And Miguel says, get back to work. And he leaves, and then the wall falls over. because oh, well, that, that's, that's, a, that's a Harpo that's, Marx gag. It's a good that's, that's gag, happened though. Oh, it's still funny to me. Or um, when Lester says, as a matter of fact, I do have an idea. Sweaters for the Cold War. 
which is such <laughs> such a stupid that's like a, a stupid line it's not but even I a dad it. joke that's a granddad joke that's awful there's also this weird bit where like they're doing some sort of weird the idea is that that on the show which we never actually see they're gonna do some weird sort of spy sketch and they mm. make a working laughing gas bomb which just seems like unnecessary uh, yeah well there's some sort of weird, there's a, another sort of motif of the show is there's a, a constant barrage of just like bizarro machinery mm. that doesn't exist in reality. Just these big sparking boxes that do strange things. Yeah. Like there's one that kind of erases your dialogue while you're speaking it. Yeah, I don't know how that, that one, I don't we'll know talk how about that, that yeah. one in a minute. That's a different episode. Mm. Let's talk about episode three. This is the game show episode. Mm. Um, now, around the time that On the Air came out, there was a resurgence of interest in the old quiz show scandal uh, from the 1950s, where yeah. the most popular game show in America was actually rigged. Mm. And they were feeding the answers to the more popular contestants. Yeah, exactly. Which is fucked up. And they shouldn't have done that. There was a big scandal. Robert Redford did a really good movie about it called Quiz Show, starring Ray Fiennes. It was nominated well, for Best Picture. Was, which was after On the Air. That was like in 94. I, I know. I'm just saying like it was. Uh, it, people were talking about it again for whatever reason. Right. I don't know why. Because uh, I remember I'd heard about it even before that movie came out. Mm. And so this is that episode. Lester decides that what we're going to do is here's a way we're going to humiliate Betty in front of the world. We're going to put her on a game show against the guy with the largest IQ ever recorded, mm. Mr. Answer. And I'm going to host the show and I'm <laughs> going to ask the question. Professor Answer. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Professor Answer. I think I'm confusing him with Mr. Memory from uh, the 39 Steps. Oh, maybe basically so, the yeah. same character. Um, and the whole guy, and Miguel <laughs> Ferrer is pissed off because the the they're going to give away $64,000, which is an absurd amount of money at the time. Mm. And and the whole and the guy's like, don't worry, it's rigged. There's no way she can win. She she's allowed to bring a partner, and she brings her like seventh grade teacher from her small town hometown. Is <laughs> the smartest person she could think of. Yeah, who's fucking brilliant. And they start getting every question right, and then they do the gag where the uh, the, the the small town teacher is actually like in the on the like while they're doing a commercial break, she says, starts oh. having a panic attack. Well, she starts yeah. having a panic attack. She didn't realize it was live television. She thought this was like it was just being recorded, mm. and she starts having a panic attack and she freaks out. And that's a gag that they go to a couple of times here. The my favorite year gag. You ever see my favorite year with I uh, Peter O'Toole? Haven't. Oh, know. it's great! It's a big hole in my my education. Uh, right? My favorite year, Peter O'Toole, one of his best performances. He was nominated for an Oscar for it. He's playing this kind of drunken, sort of Basil Rathbone type. Uh, who is on a 1950s variety show. This is actually very much the template for On the Air. Uh, and it's sort of the Sid Caesar show. And there's a lot of analogs. The protagonist is basically a young Mel Brooks. Uh, and uh, the young Mel Brooks character has to sort of keep this alcoholic ex-swashbuckler uh, you know, in the studio, on script, and then he just can't do it. And he just started having these marvelous adventures. But one of the things at the end is when they finally get into the studio and he's like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, well, if it doesn't go off great, we can always do another take. This is live television. It's what? <laughs> and he doesn't do that anymore. Uh. So she freaks out because it's live, t live TV. And then somehow the producer who's like, my nerves, my nerves. Uh. He had gotten a magical solution that makes the dog talk that also cured his nerves. But then he took too much of it. And then he winds up on the thing, and they actually end up winning by accident. Yeah, because they say out oh, damn spot. Yeah, it's like, what's the line from Macbeth? That's blah, 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 blah. Mm. And uh, the dog shows up, and he goes, I 
out, damn yeah. spot. And then she goes out, out yeah. like all cute, like no, 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 out, no. out. And then that's the that's that's uh, that's the show, and it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. I like that one. Uh, I like it made the, me laugh. I like the next one because it has uh, Freddie Jones in it. Oh, tell me! Oh, Freddie Jones from the Elephant Man. Freddie Jones from the Elephant Man, and uh, also Wild at Heart. Oh yeah, there was, Freddie Jones had this really f- terrific scene in Wild at Heart. It's the scene nobody understands, where uh, <laughs> Sa- Sailor and Lula are at a bar and they're just sort of listening. And Freddie Jones comes sauntering up to the bar, and he looks at the music. He says, "Yeah," but his voice is distorted, so it's like really high pitched, like chipmunk voice. Yeah, and then he leans in really close and says, "The animals carry diseases." He looks back at the band and goes, "Yeah!" And he exits the movie entirely. <laughs> That's his whole part in the movie. It's gorgeous. Yeah, but he's actually a really great actor. And oh, if he's, you look, he's a terrific in actor. Elephant Man. He played like the ringleader yeah, of like yeah. the circus, Mr. Who owned the, Mr. Bites. Yeah. yeah, who owned the Elephant Man? And he's deliciously creepy and Dickensian. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so great. And he's he, the he's the kind of actor he, like the parts that Freddie Jones used to get are the parts that Timothy Spall gets now. Like <laughs> that's that's what you do. And he's I think he's still alive. Is he still alive? I think Freddie Jones is still alive. Yeah, I think he's like 89 or something he's, now. Yeah, if, if he's alive, he's up there. But uh, yeah. yeah, he plays the greatest actor of all time, and Lester mm-hmm. Guy very much admires him. But He's also he's, another one who freaks succumb- out when he finds out the show he is He succumbs live. to coughing fits, and he has to you know perform under very controlled circumstances. There's this one, occasionally on the air, gets really, really clever, where they'll, they'll, they'll head in the direction of a joke we've seen a million times, mm-hmm. and then they take a left. Like, uh, and in this joke, it seems like he's coughing so much, you keep expecting him to die on camera. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the gag. And then he never does. And in fact, he actually steals the show. Like, he's great. <laughs> like, there's another bit with the magician, in it, like, I think in the next episode, where, like, it, it goes in a similar direction, and it's really, really awesome. Um, but and this, this is also... This is, the, this is where the ducks begin. This is where the ducks begin. Lots of ducks. This is also where uh, Miguel Ferrer finally gets to go on camera. Because the the they can't oh, get yeah, huh. like the, they can't get the dialogue right in the scene that's supposed to be like a recreation of some famous movie about a death row inmate and Miguel Ferrer just grabs a script and goes on there to just read the dialogue but he's got dialogue from a completely different scene <laughs> but he just reads it anyway and it's like yes well five twenty feet to go until you die and then Miguel Ferrer reads. Darling, we're going to have duck for dinner tonight. <laughs> but, but completely seriously. Yeah. Miguel Ferrer. That's way. all he's yeah. got. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> um, I don't, yeah, I don't know what else there is to say. This is the one with the Cinco Quartet, which is a line that makes me laugh. The Cinco Quartet. Oh, well, because there's it's, five of them. Yeah, it's a it's a quartet of five people called the Cinco Quartet, mm-hmm. and, and it's ah. yeah, mariachi band because Get it. Ma- mariachi band is one of those cheap gags like a nun. Uh, where you just sort of throw them in for this weird visual oddness. And I don't think I've laughed at just the presence of a mariachi band since Orgasmo, and that's only because they ended up being naked. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the naked yeah. mariachi band. But yeah, the, there was this weird trope throughout the late 80s and, uh, and early 90s where you'd throw a nun and a dwarf into the background, and that was shorthand for wacky. Or a dream. If you or, recall, it would be living in oblivion. Dwarf was dream, nun was wacky. Yeah. And mariachi was always wacky. Yeah, uh, episode five is a really great episode. Mm. It's the episode where we find out that Betty's sister is actually a really famous actress. Yeah. Uh, and she's going to do the show and everyone's thinking this is going to be the straw that breaks Betty's back and she's not going to be able to handle the pressure because like she, Betty keeps thinking her sister's going to be really mean to her and Ruth is all just like, oh no, she'll be fine. Of course she'll be fine. And then Betty's sister comes in and says, Betty, let me take a look at you. Stares at her for one second and then yells out, Makeup! 
<laughs> and just, Betty cries. But it's also the episode where they have Mr. Peanut on the mm. show, which is basically like their version of Howdy Doody or Popo Gigio. Or, uh, or Kukla Fran and Ollie. Yeah, and... Like, we don't really have this anymore, but in the 50s, there was this tradition of like marionette shows for kids on TV, and they would have mm. personalities, and kids would love them. And How, we Howdy, really... Howdy Doody was a cultural steamroller. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was huge. Like, And we don't really... I, I, Muppets. The closest thing we have now are Muppets, and it's even that's not quite the same thing. Or Mystery Science Theater, maybe. Yes, or like <laughs> Sesame Street, Mike, but even that's still yeah. Muppets. Like, but th- this is basically they had Kermit on the show, uh, and <laughs> Kermit he, he can't get any respect. And then they do the live show, and Betty's sister. First off, she gets knocked on the head, so she's being all loopy, and then like five different actors come in trying to save it by playing her role, which is really funny. <laughs> and then her sister regains consciousness and yells at the world's most beloved puppet on live television, and everyone hates her forever. But then <laughs> but then Betty actually saves the day by actually just like making Peanuts the puppet feel better. Mm-hmm. And everyone, even Lester, like agrees this is the best way to go about it. And they just start making <laughs> Peanut feel better. And they all get everyone in the America to sing for Peanut. Uh-huh. And it's really sweet. Like it's a really sweet, it's, endearing. It's episode. gotta be. It's probably the most emotional <laughs> moment in this entire series. Oh, easily. Everything's kept at such an arm's distance throughout. That yeah. yeah when, when we have this sort of sweet moment, it's when Miguel Ferrer says, "You know, this is actually kind of sweet." You realize, oh, there's some. There's, yeah, there's, if you can melt Miguel Ferrer's heart, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, pe- uh, also, quick note about Peanuts the puppet. Uh, we see the actor playing Peanut. The yeah. puppet. Uh, it's Chuck McCann, who you might remember he played Duckworth from DuckTales, and he was also voices in a ton yeah, of yeah. other stuff. He was also in one of the Lethal Ladies movies. Was he? Guns. Oh my gosh. I'll have to watch that one again, but yeah. yeah. Guns are, okay, the Lethal Ladies movies, if you don't listen to our other podcasts, you might not know what those are. There's this <laughs> a series of softcore smut spy movies mm-hmm. created by Andy Sedaris. Uh, who is so good. Hard Ticket to Hawaii. The second one is Hard so Ticket good. to Hawaii needs to be a classic on the level of The Room. <laughs> like, it's that amazing. That birdemic, that uh, no, but this, Miami it's, connection craziness. It's, it's, but it, it's not an outsider film. Anyway, but that's, that's it's, it's a lot of fun. And it's basically yeah. just softcore, sexy, really dumb spy movies. The spy spy yeah. movie where the spies are all Playboy Playmates. Look at, look at some clips from Hard Ticket to Hawaii on YouTube. There's one really good one about a guy on rollerblades and a blow-up doll that you're just going to yeah. love. Mm. And, um, and a rocket launcher. And a rocket launcher. Uh, episode 6 is the Magician episode. This is also directed by Betty Thomas, mm-hmm. who went on to... Uh, by this point, she was already directing, but she was a comedic actress. She was like the bad guy in True Beverly mm-hmm. Hills. She was in Tunnel Vision. Yeah, and then she went on to direct a bunch of really respectable uh, uh, comedies and this is a very funny episode in which uh, Mr. Zabalotnik who runs the network he's got like this gypsy magician he's a huge fan of Uh, and he gets the guy to be on the show and Miguel Ferrer's like we've got this huge magician coming on the show it's going to be a big deal it's going to be a huge speech and there's this one old guy who looks like he doesn't know where he is and Miguel Ferrer kicks him out and you think oh this is the episode no one realizes he's the magician and they just can't let him onto the stage I've seen this before, ha 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 ha. And then Miguel Ferrer realizes, wait, I've seen this joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, he brings he, bring, he brings him back, and that's the end of it. It's like, yeah. And then for a bit, you realize maybe they completely flipped this, and they think he's the magician, even though he's not, because he keeps talking about auto mechanics and talking about how he believes in the dog of transformation. And when he sees a dog with a hat and a cigar, uh, he'll th- think something miraculous will happen. Sure. 
All right. Fine. And then Lester decides he's going to learn magic to try to save the episode because this guy is obviously, if he Mm. ever had it, he's lost it. And then in the middle of the show, Kim McGuire gets trapped in a box and Mm. uh, it's all funny. Well, the the premise of the show is that this magician is going to be on, but he's he's forgotten how to do magic. Yeah. And he's really worried because this dog of transformation like was an ill omen at first. And now he's looking for him again because that will signal the return of his powers. Yeah. And then there is a dog on the show that actually Mm. is a regular character on the show. Yeah. And uh, every episode ends with the dog fainting. And that, yeah, at the end of the credits, so there's yeah. a shot of a dog fainting. But uh, yeah, at the end of the episode, we get uh, he sees the dog, and the dog is wearing a hat and smoking a cigar through plot shenanigans. Yeah, and uh, he does indeed gain his powers, and the yeah. weirdest thing on the show happens. Yeah, because he doesn't just like become a good magician. He doesn't start doing great card tricks or anything like that. He he he, he, sh- he like teleports Lester to Akron. Mm. And he turns Kim McGuire into a lizard with a human face. In, like, one of the worst special effects you've ever seen. Which makes it creepier yeah, somehow. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, so we see Kim McGuire's face, like, superimposed over an iguana. Yeah. And vegetables start to float. And you're just like, what the hell? After a while, I thought I had Bozeman simplex. It's just yeah, <laughs> something, it's something strange, weird is going on. You know, on. in some respects, it's a strange program. Mm. Uh, and then, lastly, we have episode seven, the other episode that was co-written by David Lynch. Mm. And um, tell, you can tell. Oh, you can tell. Because one of the biggest plot points is that Betty has forgotten her mother's name. <laughs> Which is a very David Lynch thing. It's a very David Lynch and, thing. And that her mother's name ends up being Mary is a very David Lynch thing. Indeed. Uh, and uh, so she's freaking out about that. Me- meanwhile, on the show... They want to do sort of a beach fun episode, but Lester Guy has gotten really into beatniks, and so he gets the woman with no name. That's, that's her. That's her name. They yeah. call it, and she's uh, dressed in black, has really, really fancy shoes. Yeah, and she she dances like an interpretive dancer and doesn't speak. Yeah, and the director, who really hasn't had much of a character until now, he just mm. occasionally comes in and shouts, falls in love with. Well, her. Well, he falls in love with her because he hears beatnik. And he thinks she's a bootmaker. Well, that that's what the word beatnik means bootmaker in whatever country he's from. Yeah, exactly. So he and Mr. Zobolotnik, I guess it's from the same country, mm. they just start every once in a while you see them like hilarious, like laughing as they wheel shoes through the set so that she can get more shoes. And they just sort of pile them at her feet and she just yeah. dances in front of the shoes. Yeah. That, yeah. David Lynch definitely had a hand in this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, although uh, Jack Fisk directed this one. And uh, also, uh, uh Lester and Kim McGuire's character, uh, their latest attempt to sort of destroy Betty's career is uh, they're going to record her voice. Uh, and like she has, to, she has to sing a song in the episode. Mm. They want to record it ahead of time so that she can just lip sync it, common mm. practice on television. Uh, and she but doesn't she... understand it. <laughs> they were going to warp it so that her voice sounded terrible because mm. one of the things everyone loves about her is that she has a very sweet singing voice. Um, but, and so then they, that doesn't work. But then they got a machine that can warp your voice live. Or I guess yeah. warp your voice. Just yeah, because it's not coming out of the recorder. It's, your, it's actually in, coming like, out of your throat. Because it ends up getting miscalibrated and Lester can like feel his voice be wrong. Uh. And you're like, what? <laughs> and then... The, the episode ends with everybody with, falls in love with the woman with no name and yes. everybody starts throwing boots at her and everybody's really happy in the yeah. boot party and, and they fade out. And, and it's, it's basically there's no business like shoe business <laughs> is the point. That was that was the final gag of the show. That was the last thing, uh, besides the closing credits anyway, of On the Air. 
And I think that sums it up quite nicely. <laughs> I think that's... Was, I, I can't think really, of a better ending for this show. It was a really good end. Everybody yeah. came together for the sake of the lamest possible pun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, clearly this was hilarious to David Lynch. It is funny. Uh, it, it, I'll say this. I laughed a lot at this show. It's a funny show. Well, uh, were It's you, weird, but it's, it's funny. It's weird, but I'm not sure if we should be laughing with it or laughing at it. Because... With... Okay. I think it's really funny. I think I think the jokes that they wanted to land land. I, I think the jokes, all of the jokes, were kind of intentionally lame. And I think yeah. if you're laughing at them, you're laughing at in incredulity that they even made them. Not so yeah. much that they made a funny joke. Well, and I think, it's that's, rare, I think that's part of it. It's rare that there was an actual sort of genuinely constructed to be funny, funny moment on on the air. And yet it creates this very distinct sort of world of comedy mm. where, it, and this is one of the reasons why I just, I cannot imagine the show working because even if you love the show, this was on like in the Perfect Strangers time slot. Like literally they took Perfect Strangers off, they put on the air in. If you're expecting any other sitcom, like, if you've been watching, like, it's 9.30 on a Saturday. That's when On the Air was on. <laughs> All right? <laughs> and stuff like Growing Pains was on TV. Mm. You go from Growing Pains to On the Air, you don't know what to make of it. If you binge this show, if you watch well, all seven episodes over the course of a day or two, you're in its world, and it works. Well, that, and that it's happens, funny. and that happens when you binge any show. I'm thinking, but if, more so than the, if, you can if binge growing nine, pains, and it's fine. You binge on the air, and you get something. Th- instead of nine thirty, if this had come on at eleven thirty, I mm-hmm. think this show might have lasted a little bit longer because people would have seen that this is not a primetime sitcom. Mm-hmm. This is not supposed to be constructed like a sitcom. This isn't something else entirely. Well, this is uh, David Lynch sort of spitballing his rendition of what a sitcom looks like in his head this is and adult I think, swim before we had adult swim that level mm, of anarchic weirdness that you yeah, can get yeah, away yeah. with now at least to a certain audience that did not but there it, was no market for it it doesn't have that sort of weird stoner imprimatur that a lot of the adult swim stuff has it's this pretty is close though like but it, it does have like that a, like that level that level of absurdity you watch something like space ghost coast to coast and this would play great back to back with space ghost coast to coast oh absolutely it would hmm. Um, Rest in peace, C. Martin Croker. Yeah, um, this the show is really, really, really funny. Um, but I, I, you know, I, when we think about like what would we do if the show lasted a hundred episodes? Uh, <laughs> I'm not I, sure what to do with the film with the show that lasted. I know seven this episodes. is a weird thing. Like I can think of like I would love to see like other like faux cameos from the era. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but seriously, any way you sort of expand the concept, it would fall apart. I don't want to see like. Betty get a new show. What's the point? Mm. It works in this very specific microcosm. And I think having these seven episodes is just right. <laughs> I'm not, it was canceled too soon. It wasn't canceled too soon. Not because it was bad, but because this more, is more would have wrecked it. I think more would have wrecked it. I think you take these episodes mm. and you leave in the bumpers and everything. If you release this as a film, it would be celebrated. I think it would be a critical yeah. hit. I think people would be like, dude, where's the Criterion release of this? <laughs> I, I do. Because this little tiny world, and this is actually one of the more enjoyable David Lynch, ex- and Mark oh. Frost, everyone involved, but David Lynch in particular, one of the more enjoyable David Lynch experiments. Maybe not one of the best, 
but one of the more enjoyable. It's it's definitely the most lighthearted thing David Lynch has ever done, and I'm even, even well, including the straight story in that. Well, uh, some of his shorts. There was that one about the cowboy and the Frenchman. I, I, I suppose and, so, you but know. you know, those are shorts, and those always end on sort of this arch, sort of uh, melancholy, for lack of a better word. This is the only time when David Lynch has actually tried to be lighthearted. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, you're right. This is this is something that is such an oddity in the career of such an odd man that it does need to be sought out. It does need to be uh, celebrated and enjoyed and given its own sort of criterion edition. And I, it analyzed. needs a proper release. Um, it, it's been released on VHS and Laserdisc. Uh, and, I think in Japan. Yeah, maybe so. But yeah. so it's never been on DVD, and I don't think it's available streaming anywhere. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, but you uh, need to seek out but this, this show. thing it's needs amazing. to be cleaned up and treated as more than just sort of an addendum to David Lynch's career. I think this mm-hmm. needs to be minded more mm-hmm. because this is David Lynch doing something that he hasn't done in any other venue of his. Mm-hmm. And it's a side of this important filmmaker that we don't ever get to see. Yeah. Uh, that said, it's kind of a difficult show to watch because really? you're a little bit hard. It, it's so hard to figure out. Um, I okay. I didn't really. I didn't feel like I had that much of a hard time with it. Okay. Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of curious because this is, this was your suggestion. Yeah. This is a show when we talked about doing the show. This is one of the first things you wanted to get to. Absolutely. And I wanted to do a few more mainstream things that people got on the <laughs> people were on our wavelength first before we got to this. Mm. So maybe I'm the asshole because I ended up loving this show. Well, I I, I really I know I really really enjoyed it. I really loved sort of delving into this part of David Lynch. But more than anything, it, it sort of stri- strikes the mind more than it kind of set my heart on fire interesting it's uh you you didn't you didn't like emotionally connect to it no not for a second this is this is this is not a show that one emotionally connects to i totally emotionally like just betty in particular uh ruth Mm. a little bit there was something about her pluck that struck me as an element of tragedy like uh that also i just love nancy ferguson i think she's great um no I, i enjoyed all of the talent on display and i think more than enjoying the characters on the show, I'm enjoying the career of the people behind it. Mm. It's the external narrative that's that's really driving my interest in, in On the Air. Okay. Uh, any, anything that happened on the show is just sort of baffling bug nuttery. <laughs> All right. well, um, well, that's On the Air. That's On the Air. That's On the Air. So we're both agreeing it wasn't canceled too soon, but it did hit the sweet spot of episodes. <laughs> it's not out of malice. Right. We just don't see how it goes much further than this. Mm. Um, next time on Cancel Too Soon, we're actually going to be throughout the entire month of October. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, Halloween horror stuff, and we're going to do two full-length uh, horror television series. Uh, but we're also going to, in our sort of mini episodes, we're going to be focusing on some Halloween specials of yore. Yeah. Uh, so next time we're going to be focusing on the Halloween that almost wasn't, uh, which you can find <laughs> online pretty easily. This was a perennial. This is played like a lot. Uh, and then after that, we're going to be doing uh, the 1990 Canadian horror series, Dracula the Series, starring Mia Kirshner from The L Word, but back when she was 15, so it's weird. Uh, it's one, one, of, one of Canada, Canada Canada's greatest exports. Yes, uh, Dracula the Series. And uh, so, so we'll be on the lookout for that. Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Please uh, subscribe and whatever. And We, we have uh, some feedback from our vinyl episode, if you oh, want yeah. to hear about that. So vinyl, we did a, the last big episode we did was a review of the HBO series Vinyl. Mm. And we didn't care for it terribly much. And I think that many people who mm. requested it weren't 
terribly happy about that. So no. let's see what we got. Uh, uh, Paul writes in and says, I, I was so happy y'all... Oh, dear. That's, that's my buzzer. So okay. uh, I apologize for everyone for blowing out your eardrums. Uh, I was so happy y'all decided to review Vinyl. I think I'm the only person on the planet who actually liked that show. Spoilers ahead. The best speech in it is in episode two when Richie goes, remember a song that made the hairs on your arms stand up and made you want to dance or fuck and go out and kick somebody's ass. Uh, then when the skinny guy gets fired and he goes, I almost signed Alice Cooper. And the short guy with the beard goes, and I almost fucked Peggy Lee, but I ended up jacking off instead. <laughs> uh, detractors who say it's not realistic, be damned. It's an alternate history, just like most recent Quentin Tarantino movies of the last several years. It's great to see Bobby Cannavale as an out-of-control cokehead, and the characters have great taste in music and hate the wimpy, self-indulgent folk and prog rock that was coming up in the year 1973. Plus, we got to see Olivia Wilde naked. I'm pretty sure we've seen that before, but okay. She Um, she did appear fully frontally nude in one episode of the show. That speech Richie gives about songs that make you want to fight and fuck Uh, reminds me of that one Kids in the Hall sketch about the doors. Yeah. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to take Waiting for the Sun. You're going to put in your tape dick in your car. You're going to drive until the album is over. Then you're going to get out and start a fight. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And once you're done with that car, torch it. Anyway, your podcast gave me an excuse to rewatch the whole run on Labor Day weekend. I'm also I also just had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Michael Weldon himself, which for me would be like as if a really devout Christian actually got to meet Jesus Christ. Neat. I wonder how much he would charge for autographs. <laughs> <laughs> Actually says that I told him about your podcast and that you guys really knew your shit, but weren't snobs and totally ma- about totally mainstream stuff, which I see as a trait among folks from California. Well, that's nice. Oh, thank all you. right. Uh, if you live around New York, everything has to be obscure and the more obscure, the better. Oh, well, <laughs> that's true. There's the, the hipster scene in Brooklyn is different than the hipster scene in Silver Lake, although they are cousins. They're, yeah, they're, they're they 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 meet up at family reunions mm. and give each other the side eye. And uh, he, he recommends a film called Red and Rosie, which uh, covers similar uh Oh, I, uh, I don't know that one. I'll check that out. Thank you. A similar uh, uh, subject matter is vinyl. Okay. Uh, we also heard from Zachary, uh, who is a little bit pissed at us. I'm sorry. Uh, I was pleased as pissed that you decided to review vinyl, but I resigned myself to the possibility that you were going to slam it like every other critic did. Hey, at the end of the day, it's subjective and it all comes down to what you like. That's fair. I, I'm not going to say not to like vinyl. I'm just going to no, say that it's, it's not a not, great we, show. We didn't say it was terrible. Uh, it just didn't hit yeah. us. Uh, the things about this show that jammed your gears just didn't bother me. I heard a lot of complaints that it didn't resolve things in a satisfying well. Well, that's the way life is, especially when you're strung out long-term on coke and heroin, which I was back in the 90s. Okay. All right. To be fair, I have no experience with coke you're or heroin. You're coming at this from a different perspective, yeah. and that's fair. And that's one thing for which television in general has been criticized for, wrapping things up in a neat little package when in real life they're often dead ends and false starts. Richie Finestra did remind me of another character, but it wasn't Don Draper. It was Max Wren from Videodrome, uh, easily in my top five films of all time. That is a great, great movie. That's a great movie. Um, I just didn't, I, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah, the vignettes with the actors portraying 50s and 60s musicians showed up and the car crash with Ernst, I interpreted all as hallucinations and false memories brought on by heavy long-term drug use, which, believe me, that experience is realistic. Like Cronenberg's magnum opus, I started questioning what parts of the story were real and which parts were snatches of narcotic delirium. Uh, That's an interpretation of the show I didn't consider. That's in there. I actually thought that for a while, but then, and I'd have to go back and relook at the show, but I'm pretty sure at least one of those musical interludes didn't involve Richie. Yeah, yeah, which would we just make sort of... it kind of, uh, kind of weird. But but there yeah. was there was the one episode where Ernst definitely was a hallucination. Oh no, that was definitely no one's arguing that that was no. definitely a hallucination. Yeah. Uh, what to you was crappy script writing to me was nihilism. The show definitely. <laughs> 
Oh, I love that. That's a great way. That is maybe the best criticism of a critic I have ever heard in my life. I love that. It's not a crappy script. It's just nihilism. Uh, the show definitely would give most folks an unpleasant visceral reaction. I know it did me because I could relate to it. Fair enough. Anyway, I love your podcast, though. I thought this show, I saw this show from a completely different perspective. Another point of disagreement, I still can't fathom why you love Clue so damn much. <laughs> the only thing that got me through that movie was the hope that Leslie Ann Warren's tits would fall out of that dress she was wearing. Well, that was a hope everyone had. Well, um, her, her and Colleen Camp. Uh, Colleen Camp, who flashes her panties. I think she, Colleen Camp, decided to do that on her own. Perhaps. Um, mm. Okay, well, clearly, if you don't like Clue, we're clearly just coming at art from different angles. Uh, uh, but I appreciate uh, uh, you writing in and sharing that perspective, because that's a valid <laughs> interpretation of Vile. Yeah, for sure. And I can see if that's your, your, your primary interpretation of the show, or if that's the angle you're taking at, you're probably going to like it a bit more than we did, but we just don't have that frame of reference. Yeah, I, I, we were, unfortunately, viewing it the way critics do, which is, how <laughs> is this a quality piece of work? And we found it to not be a quality piece of work uh, without know, the life experience of... We were born after 1973, and uh, we neither of us... I assume you have no experience with cocaine or heroin either. No, not so cocaine we, or we can't relate to that quite as strongly. But yeah, I can see that if you were alive at the time or you have a more intimate experience with that, like the creators of the show, you might be able to jibe with it a little well, bit more. Well, it's closely. just true that if your your personal experience sort of tinges or tints, whatever you want to call it, mm. uh, the way that you view various works of art, and if it, it's like a pressure point, mm. and not everyone has the same ones. So if, for example, something very particular happened to you once and a movie touches upon it or a TV show touches upon it, mm. you, it's probably going to hit you harder than someone who doesn't have that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then that's, and that's just life, and that's fine, and that's totally valid. Uh, and it's the reason why I think some people like certain movies more than others. A lot of people, a lot of times it's just, I was more entertained, but sometimes it's just like, no, you don't understand, that character reminds me of my mom. Yeah. Fair, yeah, I can't All argue, right, but that's very distinct and personal, right. and I can't speak to how personal that is i can only give you a more general overview and if there's anything personal coming at it from my end i have to articulate it and uh and as for clue all i can say is uh you're wrong Uh, (laughs) we think you're wrong on that one clue is just it's just a brilliant farce Uh, it's it's not only it feels very modern but it also feels really old-fashioned i think the cast is terrific and it is one of the tightest screenplays you'll ever encounter in a movie so i'm curious if you don't like clue like how do you feel about like the old screwball comedies like bringing up baby like if yeah, you don't, if yeah. you if you love bringing a baby and you don't like Clue, that would be really interesting to me. Or if, like that would be really un, that would be really surprising to me because that yeah, basically how do you means feel about that you the Marx like Brothers. that kind of comedy, but you just don't like that one. Yeah. How, how do you feel about the Marx Brothers? How, which comedies do you like? Yeah. Uh, also, we have a letter writing in uh, giving us the one last explanation of what Vulture stands for in, uh, from Chuck Norris Karate Commandos. Uh, a quick primer once again. Uh, <laughs> in Chuck Norris Karate Commandos, Chuck Norris uh, every week fought a sinister society called Vulture. In the show, Vulture was an acronym, but they never told us what the yeah. acronym stood for and we challenged every single one of you to come up with an acronym for vulture this was mike's uh posit very upset and legitimate team for un-american rage enthusiasts that's a bit of a reach that's a bit of a reach it sounds more like a group of people who'd be trolling on twitter very yeah a little it doesn't necessarily sound like evil organization but that's good yeah, honestly, un-American rage enthusiast. That, that sounds like Trump supporter. Oh, that, sorry, that sorry. Like, it's my political uh, thing. Un-American <laughs> rage enthusiast sounds like a one-hit wonder punk band. 
It, yeah, it really does. Yeah, it's a good one. It's like something that came along, this fly-by-night fly thing. Uh, and uh, that's just a, a suggestion. So, oh, okay. uh, yeah, that's it for this week. Okay, so again, uh, we'll be back next week with a short, uh, or shorter anyway, uh, review of the Halloween special, The Halloween That Almost Wasn't. And then in two weeks, we'll be back with a complete review of the rather long, but too often neglected Dracula the series of 1990 uh, which I can't wait to talk about I really have been, I've been watching it I, a lot and it's been it's had some I, fun with it I haven't gotten to this one yet so I, I, I no. can't wait to see if I share your enthusiasm uh, but then throughout the month of October it's going to be all horror and horror related stuff because it's October uh, it's, also it's on also on another podcast the B Movies podcast uh, we're going to be reviewing whole horror franchises every week F- throughout film the month franchises, of October yeah. and that'll be like so like last year we did every single Friday the 13th movie and every single Halloween movie and every single Tremor movie and this uh, year will be a different series of, uh, of franchises so we hope you check that out that's also on iTunes as well uh, we're on Twitter uh, on the main account Appy Movies Podcast because Whitney can't find the password to cancel too soon on I've Twitter been, I've been working really hard to get that damn password all I'm right? fine okay. but until you get it I spent, gonna... I spent like t- I sat at my computer for like two and a half hours just trying to suss this thing out and it's still not working for me <sighs> so um, it's not as simple as you think unfortunately uh, but yeah, we are at B Movies Podcast on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Whitney Seibold. I'm at William Bibiani. Uh, you can write in at our uh, B Movies Podcast email, which is bmoviespodcast at gmail.com with mm-hmm. suggestions as to what you would like us to talk about on Canceled Too Soon or feedback you've had to these episodes. And again, We'd we have hundreds of suggestions, you. but we want to keep, we want more of them. And also, now that we're doing many episodes, if there's a weird TV movie or TV mm. special or something along that line, just a one off bit of weirdness. Let us know that, too. We'll collect those Uh, uh, requests, too. Weird stuff is better uh, because every every time a new show is canceled, we get hundreds of requests for it. Vinyl is one of those. Uh, Roadies is the next one. Uh, Uh, (laughs) Well, not in the the next episode, but that's the latest one we're getting requests for. We're getting requests for, for, And this fall season, you know, we'll see if McGuire, McGuire, MacGyver, we'll see if MacGyver takes off. Maybe that'll be canceled too soon. We'll get to do that. We also did get a suggestion for uh, Young MacGyver. <laughs> if you're if you remember existed. young MacGyver. So that's something we can kind of throw Ooh, in at some I totally point. Totally forgot that existed. You're right. That's a good one. Um so yeah, so we love doing the show. We're gonna keep doing the show. We hope you keep joining us and we'll see you in a week. And uh how do some people end television series that uh, television shows, Whitney? <laughs> um let's see what's a good one. I'm trying to think. We'll edit this part out. No, we won't. <laughs> ah, crap. We're waiting. We're right. waiting on you right now. That's one bad hat, Harry. All right.